All right, before we get started, just a few announcements to remind everybody about. We will have our annual Thanksgiving Christmas dinner on Sunday, December 12th, immediately following the morning worship service, and the church will provide the meat, and participants are, uh, will provide the sides and desserts, which is my favorite part. And then sign-up sheets for what you're going to bring are out in the fellowship area. And the second announcement is tonight following Bible class, which will be cut short a little bit, we have a guest uh, presenter here, uh, Paul Scharf. I've known him via, I've met him once two or three years ago at pre-trib, known him um, via some other uh, other uh, ministries and things, and he's the new area representative for Friends of Israel. And so he's going to talk about that tonight. And I'm so glad that he and Friends of Israel are focusing on Texas because, as I understand it, there's a huge number of uh, supporters for Friends of Israel from Texas, but also because I've been talking to Mike Stallard and also to uh, Jim Showers, who's the president of Friends of Israel for about five years, about having a, a greater presence in in Texas. They have somebody representative up in Dallas, but... Um, we can uh, certainly benefit from from their ministry. And he's got a table out in the fellowship hall with some various things there, including uh, the most recent issue of Israel, My Glory, uh, which has on the cover the forbidden chapter. Uh, and if you can't read it because of all of the artwork, it's Isaiah 53. That's, uh, that's the chapter that, that uh, rabbis really don't want uh, Jews reading. So you can pick up a copy of that and sign up for a year uh, free out in the fellowship hall. Also, the film, The Most Reluctant uh, Convert, about C.S. Lewis and his, his coming to Christ as his Savior, is showing through the 18th, which I guess is Friday. And uh, everybody that I've talked to that's gone to see it has just said it is an outstanding film. Also, we have men's prayer breakfast this Saturday morning at 7.30 a.m. We're going to continue our study on uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live? And following that, the uh, men's, uh, I mean, the deacons meeting. And then the Israel trip is still on for uh, June 5th to 17th. And I really encourage you, if you are in anywhere close to serious about going, please let us know so we can start getting some head counts and getting information and I'm hoping to have a brochure available. Uh, I'm, I want to get my part of it done before uh, Thanksgiving, and then it will be up to the uh, others to find the time to get the rest of it done. But I hope that by the end of this month, that's up online, and we, we can uh, access it. All right. Cast your burden before the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. In God I will put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So before we get into our study tonight, we need to be spiritually prepared for our time to study the, the word. So we need to pray and first of all we need to make sure we are uh, walking by the spirit so we have a time of silent prayer for confession of sin 
And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that we have this time to come before your throne of grace to pray for this church, pray for this city, pray for uh, this nation. And Father, we're just thankful that we have you to turn to, that we can cast our burdens upon you because as we read through the headlines about what is going on in this nation, as we learn about all of the uh, various uh, evil plans that and schemes that are set forth by uh, our political leadership, it is certainly distressing, yet we trust in you. You are our rock and our fortress. You are our strong tower, and you are our deliverer, and we know that all things are going to work together for good and that you oversee what is taking place in human history, bringing things uh, ultimately to the conclusion that you have uh, prophesied in your word and that we can relax and trust in you no matter what is going on. We should not fear men we tr because we trust in you. Now, fathers, we go through this uh, significant chapter, this uh, tremendous praise hymn. We pray that you would help us to understand what's going on here and see its implication and application for our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 5, Judges chapter 5, and tonight, even though I have partially used this title before, I have modified it briefly, it is the battle is always the Lord's, and that is part of what we glean from looking at this particular uh, hymn, this uh, praise hymn that Deborah wrote and that Deborah and Barak sang. And it is uh, tremendous in terms of a lot of the lessons that are here, but it is one of those uh, psalms, and there's sections in Exodus, sections in some other places that just use a lot of archaic Hebrew words. And that's just a whole lot of fun, not trying to trace them down. Because what you find, I mean, these are the kind of, we got a couple of verses here, we're going to touch on this, but this is the kind of stuff that you'll hear critics will say, oh, well, people don't, know, you translators really don't know what it says, or they'll say that, um, you know, you just have to make it up, and these are the kinds of questions I'm addressing in our study on Thursday night, uh, has God spoken? Can we really trust the Bible? And it, it, the verses that I'm talking about, and we'll get to it, they don't really cause any, they don't touch on any doctrines per se at all. They are, uh, whether you take them one way or the other way, the general idea is still pretty much the same, but they would be saying two different things, but it, the end result uh, leads to pretty much the same uh, the same thing in terms of the expression that's going on there and what is being related. Uh, but when you're studying it, it just takes a tremendous amount of uh, work going through a lot of different different material. So uh, we're just going to get into this uh, into this tonight. And just to remind you, this is the structure for the book of Judges. It is not a positive book. It is a very negative book. 
The key verse is there was no king in Israel at that time. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that is exactly what we have going on in this nation today. Uh, We have completely and totally lost the concept of truth. We've lost the concept of absolutes. And if people say, well, how how much does that matter? Well, everything is built on on truth. Um, Everything from the... Uh, security of a nation's currency, contracts, uh, any kind of planning, any kind of agreements, uh, anything that is done that where there's an exchange of goods and services are all predicated upon trust. And when a nation destroys its fidelity, then it is just going to collapse internally. And it is an extremely distressing time for many of us. And what we see in Judges is the first section, the introduction, from 1-1 to 3-6. It just shows how Israel went from spiritual victory, their, their victory of conquest in the land, conquering the major cities, the major uh, uh, fortifications in the land, and taking the major areas. But then they began to compromise They didn't really want to kill all of the Canaanites, man, woman, and child, and all of their animals. They uh, compromised, and they went into spiritual failure, and they began to be influenced by the Canaanites, so it completely uh, destroyed their integrity and their nation. So God took them through various uh, cycles of discipline, divine judgment, based on what he had outlined in the Mosaic Covenant, that we find in Leviticus chapter 26. And then we see the description of the paganization of the leadership in chapters 3 through 16. Each successive leader, each successive cycle is worse than the one before, uh, going from Othniel down to Samson, who is the worst, and we're on the fourth one, which is the judgeship of Deborah. And then you have two episodes at the end, One describes the paganization of the priests, and it's just horrific, chapters 17 and 18, and then the people in chapters 19 to 21. So last time, as we began to look at Judges 5, I spent most of the time talking just basically about the um, structure of various psalms. You have psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of descriptive praise, Psalm, psalms of lament, and just what their various characteristics were. And that just served as an introduction for getting into this chapter. Now, what's interesting here is there's only, as I pointed out the last couple of times, there's only these two chapters, Judges 4 and 5, and Exodus uh, talking about the uh, deliverance from from Egypt, where you have one chapter that gives the historical narrative, and the next chapter gives you the uh, a poetic description of it, which fills in a lot more details that aren't in the uh, historic narrative. In the previous narrative we studied, as you have the battle that takes place in the Jezreel Valley, uh, near that... Um, Uh, intersection of roads and major roads that uh, come up from the south. You have one that the major trunk road that goes, uh, cuts off from the coast road, and it cuts across through um, 
through Megiddo, and it cuts up through Galilee and then goes on up towards Damascus. You have the main uh, route by the sea that goes on up north towards Lebanon. And th- these are the major trade routes where the caravans would go through and they had to be guarded and protected. Um, and it's just in that valley of Jezreel that this bal- battle, battle takes place. And we saw that the final scene shows the death of of Sisera at the hand of Jael and Yavin, the king of Canaan, uh, is ultimately defeated there, but it's not the end for him. And we read in Judges 4.23 where the text says, so on that day, after uh, Jael had uh, assassinated, killed, nailed um, uh, Sisera, that... Uh, God subdued Yavin, the king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. But it really wasn't over at that point. It's going to continue because verse 24 says that they continued uh, in their uh, their struggle uh, for a while. We'll get to that in just a minute. And then we come to chapter 5. Now, I've outlined chapter 5 this way. Actually, I put these got out of order. The uh, verse 24 says, And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Yavin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Yavin, the king of Canaan. So you have the defeat of the Canaanites in the, in the battle of the Jezreel uh, Valley, and then it's going to take time before they ultimately destroy all of his forces, the rest of his forces, and destroy him. So the war isn't over until they had destroyed Yavin, the king of Canaan, which comes a little while later. And I'll make a point of that uh, in just a minute. So the outline, uh, just through the first um, 11 verses, we won't get any further than that tonight. Uh, We have an introduction in 5.1. We have a call to praise in 5.2-3. And then there is a uh, reminder of the way God had previously delivered Israel in its history, and that applied to their situation, and that's in verses 4 and 5. And then there is a description of the bad times, and in the middle of the description of the bad times, uh, we hear that God has raised up Deborah, the solution, And then that is followed by another call for praise for God's uh, righteous acts, Yahweh's righteous acts, and the call to the troops to come out and to go go to war. So this is a praise psalm, and I just want to remind you that praise in Scripture means a public recital or rehearsal a reminder of the acts of God on behalf of an individual or on behalf of a congregation or people or a nation. And any time the objective works of God in history are recited before men, uh, that is praise. And that is what praise should be. It's not just simply saying praise God or thanks to God. It is describing what God has done. So you have two different kinds of praise hymns, those that declare praise and those that describe what God has done. 
And praise usually connotes a certain measure of spontaneity, but when you look at a psalm like this, we understand that God the Holy Spirit is inspiring the writer, but that doesn't mean that it just was an instantaneous flash. I mean, it could have been, we don't know, but usually there's work and there's thought and going on as the writer is doing that. I believe that God the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes so that the final product is what God the Holy Spirit intended. But that doesn't mean that the human writer isn't writing something and then sort of, no, that really doesn't work. And he picks a better word because the Holy Spirit you know, flicked, flipped him on the ear or something. And so he knows that, that, oh, that other word doesn't work right, something like that. And it goes through that process that that it is they are writing um, in real time, and they're going through a process of writing. But God is superintending what they are, uh, what they are writing, and so there's a spontaneity, but there's also an indication that it is a time of thoughtful uh, recording of what uh, they have. They are uh, praising God for. And even though it makes contain some lament, the major emphasis is still praise. So we talked about thanksgiving praise, declarative praise, or descriptive praise last time, and this is a uh, psalm of descriptive praise. It's one of the earliest recorded uh, praise hymns of this nature, praise psalms of this na- nature that we have. And as I said earlier, it it has a somewhat antiquated Hebrew, which means that it's a bit of a challenge in terms of translation. So we see the preamble in 5.1, and the preamble simply says that then, and that indicates a time thing, that it's after the events of the previous chapter, uh, Devorah and Barak, the son of Avinoam, sang on that day, sang, and you have so many people who just immediately look at a phrase like that day. I mean, I'm doing a lot of research still on that whole Second Peter 3 issue and the use of the Lord and the meaning of the day of the Lord. And there's so many that take that phrase that day, especially in any prophetic context in the major prophets or minor prophets, as referring to the day of the Lord, but this is a, a, a phrase that is uh, grammatically precise. It is simply two words, but yom, but is the preposition meaning in, and yom is the word for day, and hahu is the uh, demonstrative pronoun, and it is actually translated in that day, but it means, and I ran through seven different Hebrew grammars today, and they all made the same point. It means that same day. In other words, it's talking about what is Im- immediately preceding it in the context. And in some of those difficult uh, passages that we sort of touched on when we did our study on the day of the Lord uh, uh, in relation to Second Peter 3, is a, especially Zechariah 14 comes to mind, you have the day of the Lord in verse 1, and then about eight verses later it says, in that day, and then a couple of verses later, in that day again, and a couple of verses later, in that day again. And uh, so many commentators want to take those much later references to in that day 
to be referring all the way back to verse 1. Now, I have a, an acquaintance. He's a couple of years ahead of me in seminary, and, he's done a, and he has done a lot of work. He was a Hebrew major, and he's spent a lifetime. This is his little hobby horse, and he's looked at every single use of this phrase in the Old Testament and says it always just goes to the verse right before. It never goes back three or four verses. And I, I think that's important. And it, it would be easy for people to look at this and say, oh, well, when it says on that day, that's just going back to like verse 23. It says, so on that day, God subdued Yavin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. But it skips the previous verse, which says, and the hand of ch the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Yavin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Yavin, the king of Canaan. So that shows that a lot of time has gone by from the time they, that Cicero was killed and the t time the war is over. And so it's, this is talking about what happens in verse 24, that this is when it, um, it's not on verse, verse 23, it's on verse 24 when uh, the war ended. And that's when they... Uh, sing this song. That's when they rejoice. And so this is a time of great praise. And it is, if you can remember, most of us here weren't there, but we've seen the pictures and seen uh, news reels on it when uh, World War II was over and all of New York City, especially down on Times Square, just erupted in celebration. We've seen pictures of what happened in, uh, uh, in Paris when France was delivered, when Paris was delivered and the Allied armies came in, and everybody just had a party for several days. I once flew back on an airplane from... Um, from Moscow to Amsterdam, and there was a guy next to me, and he was a young teenager on VE Day, and he said people didn't stop partying for a month. That's the kind of situation here. This war is over. It was a horrible time, according to the descriptions that come in this psalm. It was a time of great discouragement and depression and economic collapse, uh, it was just horrible for, for this period of time. And, um, and so the people are just truly celebrating and rejoicing in God's deliverance. So this is the introduction uh, to this. And so it begins when we get to verse 1, uh, excuse me, when we get to verse 2, when leaders lead in Israel... When the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hero kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Now, we can talk about that just from the English and say a lot of things about that. It's probably not going to be too far off the mark, but guess what? That's probably not exactly what it says in the Hebrew. In fact, it has something of a different idea here, and so it gets a little challenging. And so we'll just start with this phrase that shows up in the second line of verse 2. And that's the phrase, Nadav. 
that is translated as willingly offer, which isn't a bad translation. And it has the idea of making a voluntary contribution or making a volitional decision about something. And perhaps this is the idea of making a vow. Now, that's an important key word to understand because it's not quite, it doesn't quite fit. It can be made to fit. If this is talking about leaders leading in Israel, it would be the idea that that now Deborah and Barak have come along as leaders in Israel and on the, uh, the people have come out and they have supported them and they volunteered to go to war. And so let's praise God for that. And, and it's saying that, but I think it's saying a little bit more than that about what has happened. And it indicates something about perhaps the spiritual nature of the people. We look at that first line when leaders lead. And this comes from a, um, a word, and, the, and you know, Hebrew is built on three-letter roots for all of their words. And these words, this word has a P, an R, and then that third letter is sort of a glottal stop, as it were. It's not really a, it's not a vowel, but it's, a, and it's a consonant, and it just pronounced, uh, when you add the vowels, it just pronounced para. And the noun form is the one that's in the lower right-hand corner, and that's para. And so they relate to the same thing. They're a word that means the same thing. And that first word, which is the um, uh, infinitive form of the verb, which is the word translated as lead in this passage, has the meaning of to let something go, to neglect something, or to uncover something. How does that have to do with leading? The problem is you have a homonym in Hebrew. I think that's the correct term, or maybe it, uh, but it, it's two words spelled the same but with different meanings. And they're both listed in the in the lexicon. And so one word can mean have the idea of leadership. But the other word has this idea of uncovering, and it's mentioned in Numbers 5.18 and in Numbers 6.5 in relation to a vow. Now, the major vow that we think of when we think of numbers is the Nazarite vow. And in the Nazarite vow, they would be not what? Not cutting their hair. They would be letting their hair, uh, their hair grow. And so... Uh, the noun form, which is the bottom thing, bo- bottom square, says uh, that that word means long hair of the head or locks. Hmm, what's going on here? Well, it helps if we understand this, that Nadav is really pointing us in the direction of a vow that when the call is going forth, this didn't all happen. You know, people walk. They weren't riding, getting on their motorcycles or their bicycles to go from uh, their home to wherever the uh, army was going to gather together. And so they, uh, uh, it took time. And they would have, uh, they were committed to the cause and they took a vow 
and they weren't going to shave or cut their hair uh, until they had won the victory. Uh, Alan Ross, who is, uh, we had him speak a couple of years ago, um, Alan uh, translate this as wildly waving the hair. They have uncovered their hair so that uh, it's not bound up. They don't have it tied up in a man bun or a ponytail. And they're letting it from, because it is evidence that they have taken this Nazarite vow. And so they are um, preparing themselves and are committed to going uh, to war. So it's not really talking about leadership. It's talking about how the people have turned to God and the call has gone forth for, the, for them to uh, come together as the army and to go to war. And so there, this is a praise to God because the people came forth in order to um, fulfill their obligations to uh, earn their freedom uh, by going, going to war. So this, is, this would be, uh, I think, a better idea, and it is more accurate when it goes to the uh, um, primary meaning of these words in context with the word nadar. And so praise is given to God for those who have willingly offered themselves to serve the Lord in the army because the people want to obey God's word and turn back to him. And so this is a cause for praise. And this is the phrase, bless the Lord. Now, when we are using a term such as blessing someone, Usually the person who is saying that says, I want to bless you. They're doing something for the object of blessing. They're um, doing something for someone who has done something for them, or maybe they are blessing someone who um, uh, they expect to get something from. But here, when you have a person blessing a superior, the the person who is inferior doesn't do anything for the person who is superior but it has the idea of acknowledging uh, that person as the source of their special uh, privileges or of special benefits. And so the word barak, which is the word for blessing, has the idea of praising God. So all through the Psalms, you'll see in one in synonymous parallelism, you'll see one line where it says, praise Yahweh, the next one, I'm going to bless the God of Israel. And so you see in that synonymous parallelism that they understand that these words function, uh, function as, as synonyms. So this verse is really talking about when the, um, when the people were committed and they, were, when they took a vow to go to war and what we'll learn later is they don't even have the weapons to go to war. They understand that the battle is the Lord, and the Lord is going to uh, preserve them. And then you have a call to... Um, so this is how I've, I've translated this. Because the wildly waved... Uh, they wild, it should have been a they. Because they wildly waved their hair in Israel, because the people willingly offered themselves, bless the Lord... And then we go to verse 3, which says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. Now, these are two more commands. You have a command to praise Yahweh, and now you have a command to hear and, and to give ear. So the idea is to pay attention. 
and it is addressed not to the leaders in Israel, but it is addressed to the kings and leaders outside of Israel to listen because they're, they're going to sing about how uh, Yahweh is the one who is the victorious warrior who always fights for Israel and that their gods and goddesses are not going to be able to prevail against God. Because in the ancient world, uh, all of these different uh, kingdoms and nations and peoples, for example, the Canaanites were uh, worshiping Baal and Asherah and all of the different uh, gods and goddesses in the Canaanite pantheon. And these are really local gods. And the Syrians would have another god and goddess. They're very similar, but they gave them slightly different names. And this is written as a polemic, as an argument against these other gods, that their gods are, um, are impotent against the power of the God of Israel. And every now and then God had to um, sh- demonstrate this because these, these, other ki- these other kings and these other nations and these kings of these city-states would think if they had defeated Israel that look what their God isn't uh, helping them anymore. And so as a result of that, uh, they would think that they were really in control, and so they would oppress the Israelites. And then God would not let them get away with that, and before long God is going to come along and show them that he really is God and that their God did nothing for them, and he, he will destroy them. And the ultimate of that is the picture of the defeat of the, ba- of the Baal and the Asherah on Mount Carmel at the time of Elijah. And later on, after uh, uh, God uh, permits Syria to rise up and be a great empire in order to bring divine discipline on the northern kingdom of Israel, it won't be long before God destroys uh, the Assyrian empire. Same thing happened with the Babylonian empire uh, later on. So just because God allows these nations to rise up and Uh, attack Israel and dominate Israel and God uses them uh, as a tool of discipline doesn't mean that they're going to get away with it because God will eventually take take care of them. So we have this call that goes out Uh, calling to the kings, the foreign kings, the foreign leaders. I would translate it, hero kings, give ear, O rulers. I, even I, and in the, in the Hebrew, there's a redundancy here. There's a repetition of not only the pronoun I, but in addition, you have a first-person singular verb. So the verb all by itself just says, I will sing. But by putting the pronoun there twice, it reinforces this. There's a tremendous emphasis there as uh, Deborah is exalting in her praise of God for giving them uh, the victory. And we see that she is developing in this verse what it means to bless God from verse 2. Verse 2, she ends, uh, bless the Lord. And here she says the way we are blessing the Lord is to sing to the Lord. And we could even translate this, the last line, I will make music uh, to the Lord God of Israel. And we know that Deborah is the one who writes this because of verse 7 where she is describing how horrible it's been. And she says, village life ceased 
it ceased in Israel until I. So you have the bad part in the first part, and then the, it's like but God in Ephesians 4.1. You see God is changing the, the game plan, and he says until I, Deborah, rose. God raised up Deborah. Uh, she arose as a mother in Israel. We'll get to that in a minute. So we have this verse, and it's an extremely strong statement of devotion and praise to Yahweh, and she's emphasizing that she is the one who's calling the nation to join her in singing praise to God and describing all of the wonderful things that he has done. And then in starting in verse 4, she is going to remind them of God's prior, prior deliverances, that God has delivered them time and time again in the past, uh, even when Israel has failed. God is the one who delivers them, and he often uses the forces of creation, rain and thunder and earthquakes and floods, in order to bring about his, his deliverance. So in verse 4, we read, Yahweh, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. So the trembling of the earth is like the beginnings of an earthquake. The heavens poured. Now you're going to have a downpour and a storm and a flood. Uh, the clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before, the, before Yahweh. So you're having flash floods coming down. And this Sinai before Yahweh Elohim of Israel. So it's a reminder that at Sinai, you had these same manifestations of the cloud coming down on Mount Sinai. You have the earthquake that occurred there when, when uh, God spoke. And it is going to go on and remind them of what God did from Mount Sinai. Now, this is a very important picture here because it starts off when you went out from Seir. So what in the world are we talking about here? I mean, most people are going to read this in the Bible, and if they know what Seir is, they're going to go, well, why does that fit? How does that fit? What's going on here? And so we have to go back and look a little bit about the connection between Seir and Edom. Edom was a Hebrew word meaning red. It was applied to Esau because he... Uh, he had a ruddy complexion, and so it is, uh, was applied to the people, uh, uh, the descendants of Esau. And first thing we need to learn about Seir is how it is used in Scripture. It's first mentioned as in reference to the individual Seir the Horite. One of the, the Horites were one of the uh, peoples that inhabited the land uh, that was promised to Abraham, part of the Canaanite uh, Canaanite group, and it it was in that land that that a future that the future would be identified as the land of Edom. The descendants of Esau would take control of that of that land, and it's uh, Seir is the personal name of the. Uh, progenitor of the people, their ancestor, who inhabited the land, and that he was a Horite. And we see this in various passages. For example, Genesis 20, uh, 36, 20 to 21. These were the sons of Seir the Horite who inhabited the land. And then it lists his descendants. 
and in verse 21 of Genesis 36, these were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. So it's drawing a connection between the land of Seir, which later on becomes the land of Edom. Genesis 14:6, and the Horites in their mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And First Chronicles 138, the sons of Seir. So he's an individual who was uh, uh, probably a well-known warrior in the, among the Horites, and they lived before the conquest. They lived in the area that would eventually be conquered by the Edomites. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, we're reminded that uh, the Israelites were reminded that by the time of the Exodus, the Edomites, the, the descendants of Esau, uh, Jacob's twin brother had taken over that territory south and east of the Dead Sea. So the Horites, um, Deuteronomy 2.12, the Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them. Deuteronomy 2.22, uh, God, God destroyed the Horites before them uh, so that the Edomites dispossessed them and dwelt their place even to this day. And then Sinai is the location where God entered into covenant with the nation Israel and revealed his covenant, the Torah, to Moses. That is a defining moment for Israel. So that's why Sinai is mentioned there. Now, what we're going to see here, I'm going to put a couple of maps up here, but this is good background for what we're looking at on Sunday morning in Ephesians 4 uh, 8 and 9, where Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, 18. And it's talking about the ascension of Christ in Ephesians 4, but it's applying from Psalm 68, 18, the victorious ascent of, the, of, of Yahweh to the Temple Mount as David is carrying the Ark of the Covenant in a grand procession up to the Temple Mount. That is the completion, as it were, of the conquest as far as it went in the Old Testament. The God is now on his mount where he is placing his name on the temple mount and where he, the, he will dwell uh, between the cherubim in the uh, Ark of the Covenant. So in this map, which unfortunately because now everything's more letterbox, it's difficult to get all of these vertical maps in there where you can really look at them. But this is more of an overview. Up in the north, you have Aram. This is the area modern modern day Syria, and so you have in the northern part of Israel, you have this uh, collection of Canaanites who are being ruled by um, by Yavin. Now, they're worshiping Baal. Baal is the chief god in their pantheon. He sort of displaced El, who was really the, the, the old uh, superior god. And they think that, in their view, uh, Baal is going to lead them south to take back all of this land that the Israelites have taken, and they're going to reconquer it uh, for the Canaanites. Now, what's happening here in the picture, down here you have Edom, which is in the area of the um, of the the Horites, and I'm going to switch slides here be, be, to show whether what is happening is that God is leading the Israelites up from Sinai 
to give them the land to conquer the Canaanites, and they're going to come up, and they're going to go through the, or actually they'll go around the area of the Edomites as God directed them, and then they'll cross the land, and they'll conquer most of the land, but they don't conquer Jerusalem yet. They, they don't conquer Jerusalem until David, and then David is going to be able to get the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite at the end of uh, uh, at the end of Second Samuel, and that's going to be the location for the ark. And he uh, well, he's taking the ark to Jerusalem earlier in Second Samuel. So it's a picture of this victorious procession that started at Mount Sinai, and it's going to culminate in Psalm sixty-eight when David brings the ark into Jerusalem at that at that high point, and so what happens with Deborah and Barak is that because of Israel's disobedience to God, God has to pause the victory and put it off because he's got to discipline and teach Israel during this time of the judges. And so there's a pause in the advance of Israel, and it's not going to resume really until David becomes king, but there's going to be this this uh, reassertion of Canaanite hegemony under Yavin, and God's going to put a stop to it. So this is one of the major battles in this progress of take, giving the land to the Israelites. And so starting in verse 6 in this hymn, she's going to remind the people of what the circumstances were like just prior to um, to. Yavin and the and the Canaanite destruction. She says, In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anat. Now remember, Shamgar's only got one verse. His name was not a Jewish name. It was probably a Hurrian name, and we looked at what it meant to be a son of Anat. That would be like um, uh, being a screaming eagle, something like that, the uh, 101st Airborne, uh, uh, the, the patch that they wear of the screaming eagle. And so the term son of Anat referred to an elite corps that were the bodyguards of the Pharaoh in Egypt. So he was probably a mercenary down in the Egyptian army. And he comes back through uh, the southern part of Israel and takes on uh, Philistines and kills 600 of them. God used him, even God can use an unbeliever, to bring about a victory. And so the significance of Shamgar, we saw, was that Israel was so internally corrupt and spiritually degenerate that God had to use an unbeliever to deliver them. He's never called a judge. Uh, It's never said that God raised him up, but that's the implication that God used him. So in the days of Shamgar and in the days of Jael, who again is not an Israelite, The highways were deserted. The travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Now, we just have a couple of more minutes, but we will get through this. Uh, pretty easily. One of the things that's interesting is three times in verses 6 and 7, the Hebrew uses the word hadal. 
And this has the idea of something ceasing or being abandoned. It's used to describe the highways. They're abandoned. They're deserted. Uh, Economic traffic has ceased. Uh, They're having a supply chain problem in Israel. Uh, because the caravans can't move on these major highways because of, probably because of the tariffs that the Canaanites are putting on them, and they would have to pay these high taxes, so they're having to take the back road, so it slows down the whole process, and you've got all these uh, caravans stacked up trying to go through the hill country of Samaria, and it just isn't, isn't doing anybody any good. It's shutting down the economy. And the travelers walked along the byway. So it's not just travelers, those who are going for, oh, let's go see grandma this weekend and walk our way over to the next village. People are hiding out. They are, they don't want any, to draw any attention from the Canaanite uh, patrols that are roving uh, through the area. So you've had an econ- cessation of economics. And then the next verse, huh, this is a fun one. Now, if we just take it as it's translated in the King James, it seems to make a measure of sense. Village life ceased. So it's, it would be the idea that the village life has been shut down because of this economic depression. It's basically picturing the fact that life in Israel has not been very good. People aren't happy. There's no joy in the land. They are, are under the heel of the uh, Canaanite uh, forces and nobody's, everybody's just trying to get by and survive until, until something changes. And so that looks at village life, but there's a problem with, with that word. And it ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. But the, the main point here is the repetition of this word three times. The highways are deserted, village life, or whatever that ref, refers to, ceases and uh, it all ceases in Israel. So it's painting a very discouraging picture. Here's the problem. On the left, you have the New King James, village life ceased. But the NET translates that line, warriors were scarce. See the difference? Second line, it ceased in Israel, and it just repeats that they were scarce in Israel. The third line, until I, Deborah, arose, and in the NET translation, until you arose, Deborah, until you arose as a motherly protector uh, in Israel. And the problem that we have here is that the word that is translated as village can be a word that uh, relates to uh, peasants or those who live in a rural village, that kind of an idea. And that, uh, and so it's taken that way. But if, when you look this up, for example, in the latest Hebrew lexicon called the uh, Dictionary of Classical Hebrew, it lists four different homophones here. They're the same four letters, same root, but they mean really different things, four completely different meanings. So you have to make a decision, what, what is this? And uh, is it talking about villagers or is it talking about um, uh, leaders or, or warriors? Now, this doesn't affect any doctrine or anything theologically significant. It's more a matter of our lack of information. But if we look contextually, uh, 
Down in verse 11, it says, Far from the noise of the archers among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his villagers. Now, the villagers is the same word that's used up in 5-7, but it's in a context where it's talking about warriors and the righteous people who have gone to war, not so much rural life in a small town. And so I think that, that there's a strong case, and a strong case is made that, that it's the idea that warriors were scarce. Israel is under the, under the, uh, the, the heel of the, of the Canaanites. Um, it will go on to say at the end that they don't have a shield or spear among 40,000 in Israel. They've been disarmed by the Canaanites. They can't fight back. They can't uh, arm themselves uh, they can't liberate themselves. They are in a place of absolute defeat and conquest. This is what is described in Leviticus 26 as the fourth uh, stage or the fourth cycle of discipline before Israel would be completely taken uh, taken out of the land. And so that is the best way to understand that. I think it's probably think, uh, talking more of a military context than not. And then it tells us that you have this line, until I, Deborah. And the, the NET has what I think is a weak argument there. They argue this is some kind of archaic form that is really a second person singular, not a first person singular. I, I think this is written by Deborah. I think that's probably correct, until I, Deborah, arose. And arose a mother in Israel. What's the significance there? That the significance is that a mother is one who is uh, a protector, one who watches over her children, takes care of her children, as God is the protector over Israel. Deborah is the one that God has uh, elevated to this position as a prophet to function as uh, his intermediary to uh, provide that protection over Israel. So the NET gets the sense uh, of that metaphor. Why is that important? And then I think it's also there because at the end of the chapter, uh, it's going to con- contrast her with the mother of, of, of Sisera. But as far as we'll get today is just this last point in verse 8 where it says, they chose new gods. Well, first of all, the verb for chose is a uh, third person singular not a third-person plural. What that means is it's a he and not a they. But it was mistranslated that way. He chose new gods, new Elohim. Now, we've studied that a lot. We'll go back over this again next week. But this is like the council of the gods, the angels. It also relates to the fact that leaders in Israel were also called, uh, in one of the Psalms, the Elohim, And so it's God choosing new leadership over Israel. It's not that they, Israel, chose new gods, and that's why they're being disciplined. The transition occurred until Deborah, until uh, until I, Deborah, was raised up. So we've we've turned the corner. So why does it go back to the negative in verse 8? Then there was war in the gates. Uh, and that's this war against the Canaanites, but they aren't armed. Where are they going to get their arms? From God, because God is our ultimate deliverer. He, the battle is the Lord's, and he is going to uh, provide that. So we'll come back next time 
and we'll look at this closing uh, statement in verse verse 9. My heart is with the rulers of Israel. So he comes back talking about the rulers of Israel again. So that fits this context. It's new leaders, new rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly. It repeats that language of, a, of the vow and again calls for praise the Lord. So we'll stop there tonight and give Paul time to uh, speak to us. And then um, um, we'll come back next time and work our way, I hope, through the rest. I hope the rest of it is not as difficult to translate as, as this has been, but I'm not holding out a lot of hope. All right, Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that the battle is yours and that as we look around us and see defeat in many ways, uh, we have de- see defeat in the universities all throughout this country and all the way down to grade school where children are taught some of the most outrageous things and uh, told the most outrageous things, everything from critical race theory to they can choose their own gender. And we just feel impotent about how we can change anything. But you can change everything. You are the God who is omnipotent, and you are the God who fights for us. And, Father, we know that uh, things are under your guidance, under your permissive will, and our primary responsibility is to uh, grow to spiritual maturity, to trust you, to be involved in uh, not only our own personal spiritual growth, but encouraging others uh, as well, and that uh, in the end you are probably preparing things and setting the stage for what will happen after the rapture. But, Father, we don't know when that will come, and it could still be decades away or even longer. And we are to walk with you and trust in you no matter what the external circumstances are because the battle is yours. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Paul's going to come up, and we'll take just a minute here to switch out. My mic on for a minute, and then... Hand me your cord. Here we go. All right. There we go. You're up on the screen. And... Thank you, friend. It is wonderful to be with you tonight. I am Paul Scharf, representing the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, and uh, Pastor Dean has already give, given a warm, invita- or, uh, a warm introduction to his love for the Friends of Israel and to me this evening. It's great to be with you. I'm coming to you all the way from Wisconsin, and as Pastor Dean mentioned, um, there's no one here in this area of Texas uh, currently full-time uh, representing the Friends of Israel. And so I'm given the privilege of 
making just a short trip down to be with you here at this time, visiting several churches and people here in the Houston area. And that's uh, been a wonderful experience for me to be in several churches. And so uh, with your uh, kind permission and uh, welcome, it's uh, wonderful to be able to come down to Texas. And I'm planning to be back here again in March, uh, Lord willing, for another a little more extended trip into Texas, perhaps. I am, uh, as I said, from Wisconsin, serving normally in the Midwest. Uh, but if we can extend that all the way down to Texas, I guess we can include that as well. If you have any questions about the Friends of Israel or, or about our ministry, <clears throat> I certainly would love to chat with you after the service this evening. I'm just going to take a few minutes of your time tonight to talk to you about our ministry and about the Friends of Israel and about uh, just a short uh, devotional thought, really, to share with you as we close. Uh, I think most of you here are familiar with the Friends of Israel, as you've uh, already shared with me as I've come in this evening, and you're aware that perhaps the sun never sets on the Friends of Israel uh, gospel ministry, and we've been in existence since 19... 38, we'll be celebrating 83 years this December, born in some very turbulent times, uh, in some ways not unlike things that uh, we're seeing before us right now. Of course, much worse times, though, back then at the very launch of the Holocaust with Kristallnacht in November of 1938. That's the time out of which the Friends of Israel was born. And today we continue uh, to serve both Jewish people and Gentiles all over the world, bringing them the gospel and the truth about Israel and their Messiah, and also especially bringing physical help to Jewish people in many areas of the world, and ultimately with a focus on bringing them, of course, that gospel and spiritual help. There's a picture of my wife and I. We have, as Pastor mentioned, uh, just a few things on the table out here that you're invited to take. I have uh, several kinds of cards, including our prayer card that you see there, also the latest issue of the magazine, and a sign-up sheet if you'd like to get a free subscription to Israel My Glory, which has been published and gone all over the world since 1942. And you would also, by signing up, be on the Friends of Israel's contact list and our contact list. We'd love to have you do that. And if you'll also uh, share your email and check the box giving your permission, you'll be on the email list for both of us. And we hope you might do that. There's our website, foi.org, where you can find much more information and uh, much more about our ministry and about our history and many other resources. Here is also where you can go to see Israel My Glory online. And our radio program is a weekly half-hour broadcast that you can listen to uh, on the radio if, if it is available where you live or also anytime online. Now here is my page uh, for our ministry within the Friends of Israel where I post all of my content that I try to provide on a regular basis and all of our resources, that's at sermonaudio.com slash p I invite you to find me there anytime 
You can also contact me there, and you can see all the things that we have prepared and provided for you. And we invite you to make full use of all of those things. And here is a series that I have written recently for the FOI website that you can read. It's a, it's a three-part series, a rather in-depth look at the issue of replacement theology and the danger of replacing Israel, the implications of replacing Israel, saying the church has replaced Israel, and also a historical case study in the third part that looks at what happens when we replace Israel. You can read that there at foi.org. You can also find it on sharperiron.org. You can find uh, many of my uh, writings in that website as well. And uh, you can find, uh, again, all my materials on sermonaudio.com. There again is my wife, Lynette, and our page within the FOI website. invite you to see that anytime. And again, take our prayer card, and we would ask that you would pray for us, first and foremost. And uh, again, make uh, use of the various things on our table, including uh, discount cards for the Friends of Israel's online bookstore, invite you to take those. It's a square card that you might think at first glance is another business card, but it actually would give you a discount to the online bookstore. Well, tonight we're going to do just a brief uh, window into what could be uh, a much longer study that I love to present from the opening chapters of Genesis. In fact, I like to joke that I only speak about the prophetic sections of the Bible on behalf of the Friends of Israel, so therefore I invite people to turn with me to Genesis 1.1. And uh, tonight we obviously don't have time to go through all of Genesis 1-12, to and including there chapter 15, and think about how we go from creation to a nation, and how we find ourselves understanding that God made a covenant with Abram at the end of that section, and seeing the implications of that covenant for all of history, we're just going to touch on these things tonight. Remind ourselves that God has a plan for history. Now that could be a whole lesson in itself, couldn't it? He's working all things after the counsel of his will. And he is directing all things for his glory and for his purposes. Dr. John Whitcomb reminds us that it's, Biblical chronology, that's the backbone of all of this history. And as we go into Genesis, of course, we understand that it gives us details about the chronology of creation. And I share that quote for that reason. We could go into much greater depth. Uh, But also because uh, I think Dr. Whitcomb was near and dear to you folks. He was here at least once, and I just wanted to share a little bit more about my own background. Dr. Whitcomb was my mentor, and I had the privilege of assisting him in his ministry for about 17 years before he went to be with the Lord. And I'm sure that many of you uh, remember him and understand his significance as the co-author of the book, The Genesis Flood. And when he went to uh, to be with the Lord last year, uh, he was remembered for that great contribution that he made, which really ignited the modern creation movement. 
the book The Genesis Flood, published in 1961. It unleashed a, a tsunami, if you will, that really shook the evangelical world, but it destroyed the house built on the sand, the sandcastle of evolution. And the waves that uh, roll from the truth of the Genesis flood wash away all that need for millions of years in the geological timetable. And so I always like to remember Dr. Whitcomb's legacy when we're passing through these early chapters of Genesis. I thought that might especially resonate with you this evening. Here's a chart that Dr. Whitcomb uh, famously used, and this could be another whole study in itself, but we're just going to remind ourselves quickly tonight that as we get off of the ark with Noah, we're in the present heavens and earth, the world in which we live today. Uh, in fact, the very world in which Christ our Lord came and walked and ministered, in which he died on the cross and was buried and rose again, we're in that same world today. It's a world that God stabilized after the flood. He modified certain aspects of the curse and brought some sense of serenity into this world that didn't exist before the flood. Uh, and we could study Genesis chapter 8 and 9 to think about that. And it's a world in which you can have uh, 2,000 years of the nation of Israel in a theocratic kingdom in the Old Testament. It's a world in which you can have 2,000 years of a, a church teaching program to go into all the world and make disciples in the New Testament age in which we live. It's that world, again, in which uh, the ark came to rest. How many of you here know that the ark has been found and it's in Williamstown, Kentucky? Does everyone know that? How many have been to see the ark? I encourage you, wonderful, I encourage you all to go. It is an amazing tribute to the true Noah's Ark, which of course has not really been found, but it is in, uh, amazing in so many ways in helping us, prodding our thinking about these things. Then of course there was another structure that was built, the Tower of Babel, extremely significant in Genesis chapter 11. And at this point, God brings a worldwide dispersal dealing with all the people of the world and forcing them to obey his will, which he had pronounced after the flood, that all of mankind was to go and to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and uh, make use of this whole new world in the post-flood world. And, of course, people rebelled and said, lest we be scattered, we're going to build the Tower of Babel. They said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to stay here and we're going to build this monument to the kingdom of man right here in Babel. And there was one man who lived in Babel whose name, actually we might say two men that are specified here, in Joshua 24, 2, uh, Terah and his son Abraham. And they were 
paganists, Babylonians, false religionists. You see, although mankind was forced to leave Babel and spread out and fill the earth, all the world was still, though now separated into various land masses and uh, separated into various people groups that were formed by God supernaturally changing the language that had been spoken. And he forcibly uh, brought about numerous new languages, which are the basis of the 6,000 languages in the world today that have developed naturally. But these first languages were brought about supernaturally in this uh, judgment at Babel. But Abram is a pagan. He's a Babylonian. In fact, there's no one in the world through which God can work to build his kingdom. All people are still Babylonians in heart and mind, in their thinking, their religion, their worldview. But God took Abraham and called him out of that very place where Babel had been built. And he creates through him a nation. And Isaiah 43 uses the language of creation when it says, that the Lord created the people of Israel. He formed them. He created the nation for his glory. He formed and made this people through Abram. And he said, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. And God makes a covenant with Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I know that your pastor has taught on this He even alluded to these things tonight. And we don't have time to go into detail on them. But I just want to impress a couple of thoughts on you as we conclude. And the fact that this covenant God made with Abram is so important. It's really a paradigm for understanding all of the rest of the Bible and thus all of the rest of history. God promises Abram a land and descendants, a nation would come from him. And he gives him a blessing. And he's going to, in fact, bless the whole world through Abram. And he will bless those who bless Abram and his descendants. He will curse those who dishonor them. And this is so incredibly important. And this is, of course, the reason why the Friends of Israel exists and why we want to come to churches like West Houston Bible Church and encourage you to seek to be a blessing to the people of Israel, to say thank God for Israel, to reach out meaningfully to Jewish people all around us, many of them here in the Houston area, and befriend them and encourage them and bring them the gospel of their own Messiah. And so we're going to conclude this evening. I'm going to uh, go really quickly till we get to our main point here at the end because our time is mostly gone. The Abrahamic covenant, though, it has these national promises, but also there's a universal aspect to the promises God made to Abram that in all the world, all the families of the earth can be blessed through Abram, and we can be spiritually the children of Abram, 
Note in the Ryrie Study Bible, we'll just go over quickly here. By faith in Christ, when we are in Christ, we become the spiritual children, sons and daughters of Abram. The Abrahamic covenant. Here's our concluding thought, friends. I want to uh, want you to imagine that we've gone all the way from Genesis 1 through 11. I'd encourage you to go home and read those chapters uh, and read and study in light of what we're thinking about tonight and try to fill in the, the gaps, the blanks, with your own reading, perhaps in an excellent study Bible like the Ryrie Study Bible, realizing the notes aren't inspired, but reading the notes along with the text and uh, thinking of these things, search the scriptures and see if these things are so. And consider this when we're all finished. How through one man Adam came all humanity. Through one man Abram came a nation. In fact, God put Adam to sleep in Genesis 2 and he received a wife. God put Abram to sleep in Genesis 15. He received a whole nation. Adam's individual rebellion in Edom led to a corporate rebellion at Babel. And that's where God called Abram to come out of. Man had attempted to build his kingdom. We'll make a name for ourselves. But God was determined to build his kingdom on earth. And he told Abram, I'll make your name great. Adam was the type. He brought sin into the world. But Christ is the second Adam from above, the last Adam who fulfilled that type and provided salvation. The ultimate descendant of Abram was the Messiah, the Redeemer promised to Adam. And that salvation was promised to Adam and was promised to Abram in the Abrahamic covenant. But it was really promised there only for the Jewish people. He is their Messiah. In fact, he told the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He told the woman at the well in John 4, salvation is of the Jews. The wonderful thing is that the salvation that God promised and provided to the Jewish people through their Messiah is so abundant that it overflows and spills out and provides salvation for all who will believe. And that's how, if you're not Jewish, if you're a Gentile person like me, we can share in this wonderful blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. We can be spiritually the children of Abraham. And I know that your pastor teaches on all of these things uh, regularly. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before, but I hope it encourages you in a new and fresh way to go back and look at the book of Genesis to think of the importance of the Abrahamic covenant and to say, thank God for the Jewish people. I want to be a blessing to them. I want to encourage them. And you can do that. One way that you can do that is through your interest, your involvement, 
in the Friends of Israel gospel ministry. And we would love to strengthen the desire that you already have in these ways and to strengthen the connection that you have with the Friends of Israel. I've watched videos from this pulpit and your church here for a number of years and been blessed and benefited myself from them. And I just want to say it's a real honor and privilege to be here tonight, to stand here in this place, to be with you. And uh, it's just a real honor to be here representing the Friends of Israel. And it's a joy to uh, become friends personally with uh, you folks. And I hope we can continue and build on that in the days to come. Father, we thank you for this time we've had this evening to think about these important things. I pray that you would use them, Lord, to increase our faith and our trust because we understand that faith comes only by hearing the word of God. I thank you for Pastor Dean and his faithful and in-depth ministry over many years here in West Houston Bible Church. Thank you for the congregation. I thank you for those that watch online. And I pray, Lord, that tonight, this time that we've had, will encourage us to uh, reinforce us, Lord, in our zeal and our desire to be a blessing to the people of whom you have said, I will bless those who bless the sons and daughters of Abraham. Lord, we thank you for the nation of Israel. We thank you for the Abrahamic covenant. We thank you for this wonderful evening together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.